This is my conversation with Asta Jen, the host of the Live Longer World podcast, where she has conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, and other advocates that are transforming the field of longevity science and biotech. She's also interested in the problem of schools failing current day society and consequently has launched the Feynman Kids Program, a place where kids direct their own learning, follow their obsessions, learn by doing and building projects that excite them, think for themselves, and come to love learning. All the relevant links are in the description below. Our conversation revolved around whether we should put an end to aging, touching on many of the philosophical and moral implications that arise when people start to live longer or indefinitely. It was a fascinating conversation and consists of many seemingly futuristic ideas, but it seems like we will need to tackle these questions sooner rather than later. So I hope you enjoy listening. So there has been a lot of talk about the advancement in longevity and anti-aging research. And an important question that arises from it is, if we could, and there's good reason to think that we could, should we put an end to aging? What would it mean for human society if humans were to live for a prolonged duration or indefinitely into the future? Yeah, that's that's a big question, um, but a very interesting one to dive into. So for one, as you said, I mean, the science is obviously the most important part, and we still have some ways to go there. Uh, I mean, if we don't make progress with the science, then none of the human problems actually matter. But then there are several human problems um, to think about, which I would argue not that many people are thinking about, which is fine because they might be a little early. I mean, one clear one is the economic aspect, right? Because right now the typical retirement age is around 65 years old. And in the US, especially some European countries too, you have the concept of social security. We are already running huge budget deficits in the US. Um, so what happens with Social Security? Do we start paying it at 65 and keep paying it for another 40 years plus? Uh, so that's one issue. Do people go back in the workforce? Do we have to reskill labor? So the economic aspect is a whole other uh, area to dive into. And then you also have the philosophical aspect. I mean, the area of longevity has a lot of stigma around it. And part of the reason is that well, I mean, we're all, we've all been dying at, I don't know, by like 70, 80, 90, whatever for people. Um, and a huge part of death is surrounded by the ideas around religion and God. So it's always, there's many societies, I mean, even if you're advanced and believe in science, will say that, oh, okay, God want, wants us to die by this age. So there's lots of stigma around just why are we, trying to extend lifespan. Why are we trying to make this process, quote unquote, unnatural, is what people will, will say. So that's one issue. And then, I mean, you have a lot of people who will probably believe in the science. Uh, they might not be as religious. They're, they won't think about the God issue, but then, I mean, you have billionaires like Elon Musk, I think even uh, Mark Andreessen mentioned it in one of his podcasts once, that okay, well, the issue of life extension brings with it other concerns, um, including are we, are we creating more statism in society? And by statism, they mostly mean, uh, what they mostly mean is that people don't really change their minds as they become older. So will they be receptive to adopting new ideas or will new ideas just go by the way, wayside if we start increasing lifespan? 
I would argue that, you know, curtailing life extension is not the way to reduce statism in society. And we can dive into that more if you want. Um, but, but, But that's one of the issues. And then a third one I touch upon is just the philosophical aspect of it. I mean, a lot of people, you know, live their lives in this rut where you first get educated, you get a job, you have a family, you get married, and then you retire. And then it's like, okay, you have a few years of retirement and then you die. But now suddenly you have another 40, 50 years plus, and people will fall into the age-old philosophical problem. Uh, what do I do with my life? You know, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to sit around? Am I supposed to get another job? Like most people can be alone with their thoughts. I forget who the famous philosopher is, but he said something like this, right? Like all human problems will be solved if um, if people could just sit alone in a room with their thoughts and, and people can't. So that's another huge philosophical problem where like most people will might have a crisis. How do I even live my life? Um, I hope not. I mean, I think there are so many ways to solve that probably uh people just start thinking more become more self-aware but 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 i would say like these are some of the issues that yeah we we need to think about as a society if you're going to extend lifespan i do want to delve into those implications but before that ironically and funnily you mentioned unnatural in scare quotes and it's you know it seems that everything humans do is unnatural and it is in our human nature to be unnatural, to extend far beyond our inherent abilities and create tools and technology that would allow us to fulfill our desires and to achieve greater things. And so I think the argument of doing uh, like unnatural things, like interfering with the natural course of things like that is a really faulty argument because everything we do is essentially going against nature and this is natural too. So yeah, that's a fun thing. I I, Uh, I couldn't agree more there because I mean, humans are essentially creative problem solvers, right? Like we're the only species mm -hmm. who go outside of our, um, I guess, what's embedded in just our DNA and our our, our genetic nature. But, But I think one of the reasons people think so many of these scientific advances are unnatural is because for years and years, we just lived as hunter-gatherers, I guess, quote-unquote, more natural lives, just, um, I mean, not really in harmony with nature, the, the conditions were really harsh, but but it was more like, okay, you wake up, you go hunt for food, you reproduce, and you probably die. Um, and then with, with, so the scientific revolution, I guess, is still um, very tiny in the blip of human existence. So I, I think people are still unused to it. That's interesting. So you mentioned Elon Musk, and he's a, he's famously known to be not an advocate of longevity. He once mentioned, I think, uh, in an interview, and I'm quoting him now, I don't think we should try to have people to live for a very long time. It would cause ossification of society because the truth is most people don't change their mind. They just die. So if they don't die, we'll be stuck with old ideas and society wouldn't advance. And you wrote a awesome critique to, or just going against this idea of Musk of people having fixed ideas inside their head and they die and that's how change happens. And maybe we could delve into why you think this isn't such a well-reasoned point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and in my blog post, I mean, I draw arguments from David Deutsch, who, um, as you know, written The Beginning of Infinity, fantastic book. Um, so what I think Elon Musk is trying to get at is that we're going to create, as I said, statism in society, which is when people don't change their minds. And my argument to him is that, well, it's not uh, letting people die is not the solution because no matter what, people will still pass on their bad ideas, quote unquote, like Deutsch calls these anti-rational memes, which we'll talk about. Uh, They pass on these anti-rational memes to their children. So even if you live till 50 or 60, um, you're still going to pass on these memes. Or if you live to 120 or 140, you still pass on these memes. So if you're passing them on from generation to generation, people aren't going to change their mind. So, So that's why, I mean, like letting people die early is not the solution. So, okay, like, let, let's talk about what are these anti-rational memes, right? And memes, actually, I think the first time it was coined was by Richard Dawkins um, in his book, where he talks about memes being ideas that spread. Uh, so it's not, I guess, the typical meme that's <laughs> popular in culture today. It's more ideas that spread. And what are anti-rational memes? They're, uh, they're ideas that essentially spread by blocking off your critical faculties. So they they spread by not allowing you to, to even consider or criticize these ideas. Are they relevant? Do they make sense? Um, can we use reasoning or first principles to actually think about this? So a lot of times you will have say, taboos and customs embedded in these ideas um, where people feel quite ashamed to even think that, well, this you know, I should be, maybe this idea is faulty. Um, I guess a, a good example is, um, I, I mentioned this in the blog post, is just how women, well, how women were treated earlier, uh, but how they're still treated in countries like Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're meant to be, I guess, obedient wives to their husbands and just take, take care of the household. So when you start, and if they even start to judge that idea, or criticize the idea, they are shamed in society. So that's a good example of an anti-rational meme because, um, because you know, they, they're judged by something, I guess, stupid, for lack of a better word, but then they're shamed to even, shamed to even try to criticize it. That's how, um, that's how these memes spread because no one will think about it properly. I would argue, in fact, that, I mean, even schools, and we've talked about this before, schools are an example of statism in society, and most people don't think about it that way. But but, but, but if you look at what's happening in schools, it's a lot of deference to authority, where we're telling students to listen to the teachers, to be obedient and disciplined. And, you know, if you're not, if you try to argue with the teacher, what's the point of this? Um, you're you're shamed essentially. You're considered a bad student, and why? You're just trying to think about it critically, right? Is this relevant for my future? But uh, b- but you're shut down. And why did do, why doesn't anyone think about it in, in terms of an anti-rational meme? So these anti-rational memes are what is creating statism in society. And this is like how humans evolved. We had these static societies, as we talked about earlier with hunter-gatherers, and they had taboos and customs customs, because there was no science. So, you know, anytime, I think I read this in Will Duran's book, book once, where he talks about how 
how the tribes, whenever um, th- there was a baby, the the girl woman would basically say, I've been bitten by a ghost. Uh, that's how they thought babies are being produced. And, you know, there were all these customs and taboos and all of that around it. So since then, we've moved to more of a dynamic society. And a dynamic society is one that, especially in the West, that that's more focused around rational memes. And these rational memes are... They actually rely on criticism to be replicated because if your idea is not good, then, you know, someone else will come up with a better explanation and you you keep iterating till you find the best explanation we have. Okay, so going back to, I guess, what Elon Musk is concerned about, he's concerned about statism and I would say he's concerned about these anti-rational memes, right? They If they keep spreading from generation to generation. But as I already said, if the... if if, if people pass on the anti-rational memes to their offspring, it doesn't really matter if they're living to be 60 or they're living to be 120. So the way out of creating mm-hmm. statism and the way out of, um, of, of people being able to change their mind and adopt new ideas is to create a dynamic society. And of course, I think a lot of people will say, you know, in the West, like, yeah, we have a dynamic society, like most people don't live by these taboos and customs, but we don't have a perfectly dynamic one, as we can see by just, I mean, the existence of schools the way they are right now, or even like, Mm -hmm. I mean, even women right now in a lot of Western societies will feel ashamed to be, to act like, act more ladylike. That's probably an implication of more statism in society. So you have these pockets of static subcultures, uh, which is where the anti-rational memes are cropping up from. So the way to create less statism is to turn those static subcultures into dynamic societies. When we have a perfectly dynamic society, I mean, just think about it. It'd be so awesome. Everyone is criticizing the ideas and not in a bad way because criticism is good. It leads to the evolution of ideas and memes. So people are actually using their critical faculties. People are being able to change their minds and if you have that society, it doesn't matter if people live to be 120 or 140 or 200 because people are constantly thinking critically about those ideas. So that's my point to Elon, that I don't think it's it's about not extending lifespan. It's about creating, turning static subcultures in society to more dynamic ones where ideas flourish, where people think differently. It's, of course, extremely hard. Again, it's like, you know, well, I don't know. I'm very, I'm optimistic because... Obviously, we've created a very dynamic society in the West. And I think the, the the thing about dynamic societies is that once you start turning static subcultures into dynamic ones, and if even it's like if it's one person or two people um, who start thinking differently, you cannot stop it. It, 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 it will evolve. It might take time, but you can, but you cannot stop it. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I mean, it, it might take hundreds of years, who knows, but I think we will hopefully in the future create a perfectly dynamic society. So statism can exist with or without people living longer lives, right? So if a society is static and there are anti-rational memes governing the way people think, then, you know, sometimes when a generation dies and a new generation is, you know, it's not obviously continuous, like generations die uh, out and the other generation is sort of adult-like already. But then don't you think there are some mutations of ideas or 
cultures, basically. So might that not allow for some, you know, change of minds or change of the way societies are governed? Because if there's the same generation extending infinitely or indefinitely, then maybe there is a high chance for statism to stay and remain? So that's a good point. And I think that actually speaks to the tension between older generations and younger generations, which always happens in society and it's been happening for years, where, yes, the older generation will try to push down their values. And, you know, the older generation might maybe hold more anti-rational memes. Who knows? Maybe some of the ideas are fine, but the younger generation will try to adopt newer ideas and uh, they come up with their ways of doing things and, and, and they both both generations criticize each other. And that's healthy. I think that's actually totally fine because you can learn from both generations. Um, the problem starts to stem, as you're saying, is like if the older generation starts to win out with the anti-rational memes, which they pass on to the younger generation. And again, yes, I do think it could, if, if we have, you know, an older generation living longer right now, um, it, it is possible that they put more pressure on the younger generation to adopt their static subcultures. Um, but again, I, I, the younger generation, once they become dynamic, I mean, I think you see this happening a lot in India right now, once they start thinking differently and becoming dynamic, it's quite hard to stop them. They are, I mean, most of them are like a force of will and ambitious people. And you only really need a few people, in fact, to make a huge difference. And once that 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 that, that arc changes, um, it's it, it is very difficult to reverse it. There will there might be more conflicts, possibly. There might be for sure, where you know there's just more tension across generations or different uh tribes or different political factions. And this is happening in society right now, too. But it, I would argue some of it is again like the, the conflict of ideas. Um, but but I, I think um, I, once the younger generation, I mean, I guess, turns dynamic, I mean, even the older people, I think, turn dynamic, it's hard to reverse that trend, is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to turn to population. Uh, there might be a common argument that if you make people live longer and then we might run out of food, but any civilization that can solve, you know, death, then they can definitely solve world hunger, I suppose. And, but still this population thing arises. If more people start living longer, then would we have more people living or will there just be like sort of a mid range of people living and how will we, solve many of the problems that arise with a larger population. Yeah, so it, it it's interesting because most of the concerns that come up around larger population stem from the fact that people seem to be pessimistic about humans. Um, and I'm not sure why, I guess maybe because the news or the media propagates it where everything's about just all the bad things happening in society. But... I think it's wonderful if humans live for a long time and there are more humans living because at the core of it, humans are creative, optimistic problem solvers. So just imagine a society where you have more people living in a dynamic world, trying to come up with more ideas and conjectures and trying to criticize them and come up with new ways to solve problems. 
I mean, that, wouldn't that be wonderful? Like if you have more minds working on something or if you have different people working on different ideas and taking their ideas seriously, you could solve so many problems in society. But to come back to your question on, on food, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's again, it's, it's a problem, right? So if you have a human mind who's able to solve the problem and produce more food, it's not going to be a problem at all. And I think it's like what the Malthusian effect. Um, this this was a problem that was brought up even like a few years ago, and everyone was worried that oh we're we're going to run out of food. The population is increasing. We don't have the resources for agriculture. And and look what we have the problem of obesity now. <laughs> really, like more people are dying, I think, from obesity <laughs> than starvation. Like sure, starvation still exists in some parts of the world, but it's not as big of a problem. So. You know, with, with population advances and um, the problem around food, I mean, there might be more issues around just trying to figure out logistics, a supply chain, which, which, which we are seeing right now as well with the war in Russia and Ukraine. That's obviously led to inflation and prices because of supply chain issues. But, but, but it's all a problem at the end of it, which can be solved. And who solves these problems? It's humans who solve these problems. So if you have more humans, I would argue that it should um be 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 better at solving these problems and then on the issue of geography right people would also complain there's oh we're gonna run out of space to live in um i think the the funniest counter i saw to this was uh brett hall posted i think on twitter where a globe of um the the earth where he said oh look like the entire human population can actually fit in Australia, and people people worry about not not having much land if we increase the population. So th- these are problems that you know will come up. We're not never gonna live. The other thing with a dynamic society is that we're never gonna live in a society that quote unquote has no problems, and that's a bad society to be in because then you're again promoting statism in society. No one's working on new ideas. And when you're working on new ideas, it inevitably leads to problems. Problems aren't bad. Problems are almost a good thing to have because you make advancement that way and they're all soluble. You just need creative ideas and experimentation and iteration and criticism to work on those problems. So I think it's a non-argument, but people just don't... uh, don't think about it from an optimistic lens and don't think about it from the fact that humans are the ones who've been solving these problems. So it's just a flawed philosophy of thinking about humans, I would say. Yeah, I like this philosophy where we may not have the right answers right now. We don't even have the situation to implement these right answers because people don't live in very long years right now. But still thinking that we could solve these problems and we just need to know how and have the best minds working on them. So you mentioned the Malthusian effect and, you know, people in the 20th century, they were worrying a lot about food, not food running out. And then Norman Borlaug, right, uh, he came up. He's probably the most underrated person in human history. He's known by few people to have saved a billion lives. And, you know, he uh, implemented the Green Revolution and some other great effects. And obviously now, like you mentioned, people are dying more from obesity than starvation. And, yeah, we solved a problem that people thought was going to be the end of civilization. You know, people thought, people really thought that um, 
lack of food is going to kill the whole civilization. And here we are. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really appreciate this philosophy. Exactly. So, and, and the other thing with problems is that we don't even know which problems can come up. Like you, you just can't foresee yes. the future in a dynamic society. Uh, so it's, it's again about, yeah, some human will come up and try to solve the problem. And sometimes I think we, we see more problems than uh, unforeseeable solutions. So uh, we can see that, you know, this problem might arise, this problem might arise. And, you know, there's a list of unforeseeable problems that might arise, but we don't foresee the unforeseeable solutions that might arise uh, because of whatever work we do, which progresses humanity. And yeah, so Brett Hall also has this saying called uh, prophecy is biased towards pessimism. Mm -hmm. So when you're predicting or he says prophesizing, it's biased towards pessimism because it's easier to just imagine problems rather than problems and the solutions. So it's just logically false from there that prophecy is sort of biased towards pessimism. Exactly. And, and that's a great point. And I think, I mean, hopefully that's actually one thing where people change their minds on more easily. I, I'm not sure if maybe more dynamism and optimism combined would change their mind. Uh, but that's, that's a great point. And now many great thinkers have argued and many people experience this in their own lives that death gives a lot of meaning to living itself and you know it's something that motivates us all to live our best lives and achieve things we want and without it will there be sort of a lack of meaning lack of motivation or desire that we get only from that that we have a finite amount of time living here and we might as well make the best of it without it might there not be a lack of purpose in some lives. We have solved that. We're going to live indefinitely now. What do we do? You know, this is what we came at at the beginning. What what should I do with my life? And yeah, I think it's important to ponder this as well because we don't want to create a society where people just aren't doing anything. They're just, I don't know, spending their lives through inertia. We want, we want people to still be working on problems and creating different, uh, making progress. And I don't know. Uh, what do you think about this? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think, in fact, this problem, the philosophical human problem of just meaning of life, mm-hmm. how to live your life, is probably the, the the hardest problem to think about uh, because it's it's like it's not scientific really. I mean, you can apply. Um, just how to like scientific principles to how, on how to live your life. But most people don't do that. Most of it is just like, yeah, like philosophy around what gives me meaning in life. And for, for most people, it's what? The, the idea of dying or it's your children and your family and your relationships. Um, so there are probably, I, I would say there, I mean, probably three different camps of longevity. One is the tinier one, which is very pro, absolutely, let's fight death. Um, then there are some that are like, no, let's just extend lifespan. And then, then you'd have a third one that's like, okay, sure. Like, yeah, let's extend lifespan. But the more important part is extending health, health span, which is the number of healthy years you live. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're, you're 90, um, and you're bedridden and you live another seven years or so, the, the last seven years are just not fun. 
So if you can have like be experiencing living like you're 60 when you're 90, that's increasing health span. Um, I think we are far from solving death, but it is interesting to conjecture what happens, right? If we do solve it, I, 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 I do think it is going to be probably a mini crisis, unless again, people, we, there are ways to solve this problem. And that's again, just to think about life and how you want to live it and try to live a more self-aware life, which I would argue people are becoming trending more towards that direction or maybe it's just maybe the circle I, I hang out in I'm not sure um, but I, I think a lot of it stems from am I living my life day to day the way I want to live my life and it's not about um, following an external compass it's about following your internal compass because when you are every day is a day in itself you just start enjoying life and you want you want to live, I guess, as long as possible. But, you know, this is very interesting. But but even those who are living their lives day to day in a very meaningful way might want to die. You know, you it still gives you meaning in life where you know you have a finite amount of time and I want to make the most of it. And when you've lived your life fully, Death is not a big deal. I, I think it was Seneca. I, I forget who the philosopher was, but, but he had, had this beautiful quote where he said that, you know, life is actually not short. People keep complaining life is short. But if you've lived your life meaningfully from the beginning, it's a long life. It's not a short life. And I think that's probably largely true. It's better to live 60 years where you're living a meaningful life than live for 200 years where your life has no meaning. So, so, so that is, that's going to be a hard problem to solve. It's, it's, it's like philosophy that's been going on for years and years. And how do people get meaning in life? I don't know. Tell me if you have any ideas. Maybe people have more children that gives them more meaning or grandkids give them more meaning. Um, but, but, but I, I actually personally as well, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I think it's fine. Um, I want to live a very meaningful life as long as I'm alive, but, but it's fine if, if death happens. I mean, even right now I'm like very pro life extension, but you just have to be okay with the idea that, you know, you could die tomorrow as well. Like you just never know, uh, which is why I think it's like, yeah, live your life well. And maybe that's what gives meaning to life, right? Maybe if I know I'm never going to die, then, oh, whatever, I can just like do whatever I want. But people might get bored of it in a few days. And and then they start thinking, well, okay, if I have this life, may as well live it meaningfully for years and years. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I guess animals are very different from humans, but so many of them live for a long time. They live for like 200, 500 years, some whales. But I mean, it's impossible to study. We don't really know if they think about meaning in life. I think it's a very human problem. So it's a non-comparison, honestly. Um, but but I don't know. I think that, that that is an important part of meaning of life. So tell me, tell me how you think about it. So first, it's important to uh, mention this. Uh, you hinted at before that if we have longer lives, we'll definitely have better health spans as well. Nobody would want to live longer but be bedridden or just be in a bad state. And I think, I'm not sure, because when this happens as well, um, if we tend towards a dynamic society, 
like it is, uh, then we might have problems to solve. And if people are healthy, even at 150, like they were at 30 or 20, then they might want to solve problems. But when you're living just indefinitely, maybe there is some lack of problems that you notice or some disinterest to almost everything in the world that you notice. And I don't know when that happens, when just a complete lack of purpose stands up. So like you also mentioned, I think, uh, so yeah, I'll just ask this question again. So if you were to live for 60 years and live a very meaningful life, would you do that instead of living for 120 years and having a lack of purpose at the end, say 30 years or something? What would you choose? Probably 60 years of meaningful life. I think that's that's more mm. important. Yeah, it's, I, it's very I subjective. Would... I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, meaning is quite subjective, but let's say like you have disinterest or just lack of purpose. Exactly, yeah. I'd hate to live a life of drudgery every day and live for 120 mm. years. Uh, and I think that's also why people are resistant to the idea of life, life extension because most people, mm. a lot of people aren't living very fulfilled lives. They're just doing a job that's soul-crushing and and when you think about life that way you're like why do i want to live that long you know i just kind of want to like live for for the the period i want to live for and then retire and then it's it's fine uh i die but you brought up an, a really good point before this where i noticed like i guess i was also probably not thinking about you know in the long term you just never know like which problems come up that excite you and that could give you purpose in life. I mean, for me as well, like I just got interested in longevity, like in the last three years and I loved it. So it's like when you have this, this sort of society that um, thinks about themselves as optimistic problem solvers, then you, you'll always get excited about problems you want to solve. And that probably gives you a lot of purpose in life. And, and, and maybe then, yeah, you want to live life. Like you want to see where it goes. You want to see how your, if your problems get solved, you want to work on new problems. And then like, you don't, don't even think about that then. Cause that's just the way of living. That's like, I'm having fun in life and yeah, I'm going to keep living life. Um, so that's, that's probably a solution. Like again, changing people's minds and how they think about themselves and their contribution to, to the world in terms of, you know, I'm, I like humans are special and each person should think they're special and take the idea ser- seriously and 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 apply creativity and conjecture i, I feel like that, that there's a lot of backlash we get in society now for calling humans special and like oh we're not actually special we're just animals but but i think people need to understand what humans actually are and, and they'll start taking themselves more seriously and their lives more seriously and you're right that could give them purpose in life yes so recently i, I got very interested in this idea of desire uh, where right now we are sort of living in a loop where we have a desire, we achieve that or work toward that, then achieve that. And then another one stands up and then we go again in that loop. I do feel that has its disadvantages, but it also has its good points where you're making good progress and you're actually improving the state of your life or other people's lives and i do think like we won't have to stay in a certain human state like we are right now so perhaps this the state that we find ourselves in you know dissatisfaction after having achieved the goal and then another craving 
perhaps a little bit of a neurochemistry and stuff might change or we might uh, mess up with it. But ultimately, keeping this uh, thing of desire alive, like keeping the interest, keeping just wanting to change stuff and make more progress alive, I think that'll be important because you might, I do think a lot about this, like having a medicine which is really without side effects and it's like actually good for you. So you take it and it gives you a certain state of happiness, which is unlike any other conventional drugs, of course, it will be very important and good for you. And so you take it and you just trans, you're not the same human self you would be. But then again, keeping desire aligned and still alive. So I think like a famous philosopher said this, um, ultimately it's, not the desired, but the desire that we love. So it's not the thing that you crave, but it's the desire itself, the idea of desire that you love, like idea of craving, that's what you love, not the craved, which I think is so true and so awesome. And just keeping that alive so that we have people still wanting to solve problems, I think that'll be good and fascinating. Right. On the, on the point of craving desire, I think it's like what we actually get a dopamine boost when we think about, mm-hmm. you know, meeting a friend in the future. But when, when the event actually happens, it's way less blissful yeah. than, than what you imagined it. And the point of the pill, um, that sounds a lot like, I guess, what Aldous Huxley talks about in The Brave New World, if you read that book. It's a pill called the Soba. It's, it's, it's a fantastic book. I think you might like it. It's a pill called the Soma, and it's basically like this happiness pill, which everyone pops in in society. Well, the ending is dystopian in that book, because what ends up happening in that society is that everyone is always in a blissful state and no one's working on progress. So there's no mm, yeah. there's no um, problems or conflicts in, in, in your mind and you aren't really thinking creatively. And then this person enters this blissful society from the outside world and and um looks at it as like what what's going on like what we need we need some problems to work why is everyone just happy and not doing anything with their lives there's no reading like no one's thinking critically so it would be i guess cool if you could have this like the semi-happiness bill where people are happy yeah. and optimistic about the world but they're also working on problems and making progress um but but I think there was one other point that you mentioned there um, about, I guess, okay, anyway, I forget now. Yeah. <laughs> Problem. Yeah, so that's essentially what we need to avoid, right? That blissful state where no one's doing anything. Uh, with or without the pill, that could come from removing that entirely as well. Uh, they might not be blissful or they may be blissful, but then if they're not doing anything, we need to avoid that because at any time an asteroid might come in, you know, asteroid as a metaphor, not the literal asteroid, but a metaphorical asteroid might pop in and next thing you know, we're all extinct. And yeah, it is so awesome to be thinking about these things, even though perhaps they wouldn't be important in the coming years, but I do think they will be grave questions in the future. And yeah, we I should think so too. I think we'll definitely make advancement. Right. And, and I, and I remember my point, it was on desires. So what you essentially described okay. was the hedonic treadmill, right? Where people pick up desires mm-hmm. and then they, they, they feel unfulfilled and they pick up another desire. 
I, I do. I mean, yes, I think if you have no desires in society, you're probably just becoming a monk or a saint, right? And you're not making this progress. So you need some desires to make progress in society where it's like, oh, I really want to work on this thing. And uh, yeah, it's a desire that is driving you for sure. Uh, but I think sometimes it also just jumping from desire to desire leaves people unfulfilled because they pick the wrong desires to work on. If you're picking desires like, again, that are more driven by external compass and more driven by, I just want that status in society or I just want fame or I just want like a billion dollars. Once you achieve it, you probably, it's it's possible that you'll feel unfulfilled and empty and then you shoot for the next billion dollars or whatever. But if you're working on desires that are actually leaving you fulfilled, you're excited to work on it every day. Um, and then you solve that problem. I would imagine you probably feel feel good about it. Like, sure, it's like, mm, I guess, yeah. an ego boost or whatever. But 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 it's, it's, it's like, okay, I've solved something for society, um, hopefully something good. And then it's like, okay, what's the next problem that I can work on that is going to be exciting and fulfilling to me? So I think it's really important to pick your desires well if we are going to have desires in society. Um, and that's an, another way to probably solve the philosophical problem of human human nature. Yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're obviously quite involved in this field. So now I want to uh, go to like the progress we're making so practically right now. And perhaps could you give us a little history or how far we've come in this field of longevity and maybe what the coming few years might hold for us? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of exciting science and advancement going on. Um, I personally think, I mean, so I probably bucket longevity therapeutics and a few different categories. One is just the supplements. So you have all the longevity supplements and trying to figure out which pathways they're affecting and whether it is actually extending either lifespan or health span. Then this one area you have uh, that a lot of companies are working on is epigenetic reprogramming, which Alto's lab, the famous Jeff Bezos started, the company started by Jeff Bezos is working on, which is really uh, trying to make your cells essentially into a younger state. So you, you, you take an old cell and rejuvenate it back to a younger state, but it's partial reprogramming because you don't want it to become like a new cell entirely because it, it, it wants to be differentiated with its features. Then the other area that I'm actually super excited about is um, the area of heterochronic pyrobiosis, which is in popular media, people will think about it as young blood. And it's like, oh, Peter Thiel's been taking young blood. You see news reports. or it's like, oh, young blood strikes again. But it's actually not the young blood per se, but it's the dilution of the bad factors in the old blood that is likely causing the effect. Again, like all of these three areas while there's amazing science and there's, there's progress being made, we're still far from testing in humans. I mean, you have some supplements that are being tested in humans, but really most of the supplements probably outside of rapamycin and I, I think acarbose um, more recently that I heard of doesn't have that much of an effect. I think some people will take even a minuscule effect if it makes them feel healthier, which is, which is great. 
Um, but they're also just being tested in, in mice. We have little human studies being done uh, right now. So I think we still have some ways to go. Um, then the partial reprogram again, all mostly in animals right now. And heterochronic pyroviruses, actually, I think there are a few clinics that are testing it out in humans. Um, there seems to be some positive data from that. So in terms of the history, I mean, we've come a long way. People actually have been working on this for a long time, but it was considered just, you know, weird and like hippies working on it. And it's like, it's probably still considered a little weird by some cultures. But I think what people miss when they call it weird is that aging is the biggest factor for all diseases. So, you know, you see billions being spent on trying to solve cancer or let's try to work in Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or other diseases. But when you actually step back and take a look, the biggest factor driving all these diseases is age. It's literally just age. Like if, if you look at a um, 30-year-old who smokes probably more than a 60-year-old, the 60-year-old is way more likely to get lung, lung cancer than this 30-year-old smoker. So it, it doesn't really, I mean, your lifestyle obviously makes a difference, but it still comes down to age. So what we do, what we really need to solve for is aging. And I think that's missed by people that, you know, if we're solving for aging, we're actually solving for all these diseases, which no one wants in society. So again, like, even if you don't want to live to, to 100, you're actually increasing your health span and you're becoming younger. Um, so going back to your question, I would say those are the three broad buckets. But I think, I mean, I think we're still far from really, or may, maybe not so far, but we aren't there yet where we've tested out in humans and we know for sure that something is working or not. Okay. Yeah. Uh, coming to one of the points you made. Uh, so I do think, and I may be wrong, so correct me here, uh, that people have been working on extending lifespan since a long while, since since the time they actually started to cure any disease. So because indirectly, and they may not explicitly state that they were working toward longevity and uh making lifespans higher, but they were indirectly working to cure diseases. And this was, you know, ultimately causing people living longer. And so do you, I, I don't know, do you think this way that uh, longevity actually started way before people might've formally named it something? That's an interesting point. Cause then it goes back to, well, is, is solving specific diseases also considered longevity therapeutics? Mm, I mean, yeah. you could argue, okay. you could argue maybe, but I guess, um, I guess the, 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 the way the field of longevity actually sees itself is more like, well, you know, we're going to target all these different diseases if we can cure aging itself. Um, so I think what started earlier was people trying to like work on cancer, uh, especially in the 19th century, and then um, other diseases that started cropping up. And then then people slowly started realizing that, wait, actually all these diseases are being driven by age, which gave rise to the field of longevity by, and ger gerontology. So when you say age, uh, all these diseases are uh, caused by age, could you like give a more vivid description about it? Uh, I don't think... I'm catching on there. Yeah, so the, the, the best example was the 30-year-old was a 60-year-old lung smoke, smoker I was talking about. So essentially, as you start getting older, I mean, there are several different explanations people have for aging, but 
a simplistic way might be to look at it as damage accumulation in your body or just your body failing to repair the damage that's going on. Um, so it's like similar to your car where your car accumulates damage and starts to break down, but needs repairs, but then ultimately it just gives in. Right. Um, so age being the number one factor, meaning that somewhere around the age of, I don't know, 50 or 60, and it's different for different people, depending on their lifestyle, you have such a high chance of getting a disease. It's compared to like a 20 year old. It's, it's like, it's, it's out of the, the picture. It's like some, I don't know, hundred times likely or something like that, depending on the disease. Um, so like, I, I think for men, it's like almost all men at some point end up getting prostate cancer. For example, women have a really high chance of getting breast cancer when they're older. And then you think about it, it's like, well, why don't I get these diseases when I'm 20 years old, right? Or even 30 years old. And, and no one knows it's, it's cause it's like something's happening to your body as you, as you start to age. And I guess going back to evolution, um, Rich, I read this in Richard Dawkins' book, and he has an interesting explanation where, you know, some people argue that it's just evolution that that's playing a force, where um, once you reproduce, you've passed on your genes, and evolution's like, okay, we can kick you out of the picture. We don't really need you anymore. <laughs> you've successfully re replicated your genes now. So that's why maybe humans have a limited lifespan. Um, but 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 he he had this um, interesting part where he says that, oh, maybe, maybe the, the, the way to extend lifespan is just to trick your body into thinking it's younger, into thinking that it can still successfully reproduce. And, and that kind of goes back to like, yeah, we're with these longevity therapeutics, all we're doing is kind of tricking our body to think that it's younger and a biological age is much lower uh, than the chronological age, which is just the number of years you live, versus the biological age being your body's internal uh, longevity clock. So age being the number one factor, meaning that, you know, just as you start getting older, all these diseases start to crop up, which you don't have when you're younger, even though you might be living a worse lifestyle when you're younger. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I probably want to just keep extending the number of years I live. I just want to live long enough until we defeat that. That sounds exactly. like a good goal. Right, right, right. And I mean, there's nothing really in the laws of physics that says that we can't defeat that. So I think so. Hopefully we will get there someday. 